the afternoon. The, uh, the first session will be uh, Danny Rabinowitz, who requested to be introduced as Sir Danny Rabinowitz, but we will not oblige him uh, this afternoon. Uh, and he will be uh, talking about knowledge by way of prophecy, and the commentator will be Rachel, Rachel Fraser. Um, so, in Danny's paper, we get this account of prophecy, which is importantly distinct from like testimony from God, in which the prophet's imagination produces a prophetic object which depicts some proposition, and the prophet has to go through this process of figuring out what proposition it is that the object depicts. And a major concern for the paper is figuring out what features of the prophetic mechanism might turn out to be responsible for a lack of safety in the belief which is the output of this epistemic mechanism. So the first thing I'm going to do is just suggest some features of prophecy, as it's spelled out in this account, that might turn out to be responsible for a lack of safety in the output belief which aren't like dealt with directly in the paper. Um, so first of all, I want to suggest a way in which the process of object interpretation might go awry in a way that isn't considered in the paper. So my remarks here should be taken to be directed towards prophetic objects which have a specific design plan. So in the paper we're told that when a prophetic object has a specific design plan, each impression constituting the object is designed to be mapped to a designated meaning such that the overall meaning of the object is the composition of those constituent meanings. And we're told that this is akin to the compositional theory of meaning, according to which the meaning of a complex expression in a language L is determined by the meaning of its constituent parts in the syntax of L. So what I want to do is lean on this comparison a bit to see where it takes us. So suppose I've got a written token of a sentence, um, and I want to figure out which proposition is expressed by the sentence. So I go about the process of compositionally assigning semantic values to the constituents of the sentence. So there's one kind of mistake I might make where I get the semantic value of a constituent wrong. I think the word dog has the semantic value that wool actually does. Um, and in the prophetic case, the analogue of this is just where the prophet gets the depiction relation that obtains wrong. So Danny spends quite a lot of time talking about this kind of mistake in the paper. But with the written sentence, there's another kind of mistake that I could make. So Suppose we have a sentence token which is written down. So there's this string of letters which expresses a proposition. And uh, before I can go about the process of compositionally assigning semantic values to constituents, first of all, I have to be able to tell which subsequences of the letters actually constitute constituents. So I might make this kind of mistake. I might be wrong about which subsequences of the letters are constituent constituting. And most of the time, with written tokens of sentences, this is a pretty remote possibility because we have this really robust convention of leaving spaces between words. Um, but there are maybe some cases in which it's less of a remote possibility. So there are some weird sentence types in English where a sentence token of this type consists of exactly the same letters in exactly the same order as sentence tokens of another type. So an example of... This kind of pair of sentences are capital is misappropriation and capitalism is appropriation. So reading the writing of a Marxist scholar with particularly sloppy handwriting, we might come across something looking like this. 
Um, and in that kind of circumstance, we might think it would be pretty easy to make a mistake about which subsequences of letters are constituent constituting. Um, and thus, you could easily make a mistake about which um, about what proposition was expressed by the sentence token. Um, so what's the analogue of this going to be in the case of prophecy? So if we've got a prophetic object with a specific design plan, presumably we could split this prophetic up, this prophetic object up into different portions in like a whole different bunch of ways. But uh, only some of the portions of the prophetic object are going to be such that they stand in depiction relations which play a role in contributing to the proposition which is depicted by the object overall. So the worry is that there are going to be cases in which um, the prophet who's confronted with a prophetic object might be mistaken, not about what particular depiction relations obtain, but about which portions of the prophetic object are these special kinds of portions which are actually relevant in the given case. So we can call these special portions the ones which are the ones which play a role in contributing to what proposition is depicted by the object overall object components. So if we had if a prophet was presented with this sort of thing in his Where's the pen? Um, <coughs> so if a prophet was presented with an object like this, this is like obviously a highly schematized example, but it might be the case that um, in fact, A, B and C, D are the object components of this prophetic object. But it seems like the prophet could easily make the sort of mistake of thinking that actually AC and BD are the object components. And um, so in a given interpretative situation where a prophet could easily make this kind of mistake, it seems like this is going to be a source of lack of safety and the output belief. Um, so that's one thing. And um, so I want to make another suggestion about another way that the output belief could end up being unsafe. So start off by wondering about what it is when we've got an object component, let's call it A, which depicts B, uh, we could wonder, like, in virtue of what is it that this depiction relation obtains? More generally, we could worry, what sort of thing is it that explains or determines why depiction relations obtain? Um, and I think this is going to be more than a diverting question. I think this is going to turn out to be like really epistemically significant, what sort of thing plays this explanatory role? Uh, and to see why it's going to be epistemically significant, I think it would be good to turn our attention away for a moment from the uh, unfamiliar epistemic mechanism of prophecy and towards the more familiar epistemic, ep away from the unfamiliar epistemic mechanism of prophecy and towards the more familiar epistemic mechanism of testimony. So suppose we have a case where we have a speaker S and an address C A and S tells A that P, by means of making some assertion alpha, and our addressee comes to believe that P. And we can also suppose that P is true in all close by possible worlds. Nevertheless, our addressee's belief that P might fail to be safe, and it might fail to be safe for one of two reasons. So one reason it might fail to be safe is that there are close possible worlds in which this assertion alpha constitutes an assertion that P, but... The, address, the addressee misinterprets it, takes it to constitute an assertion that Q, where Q is false. And again, this is just an analogue of the case where the prophet, it, you know, 
gets a depiction relation wrong. Uh, but in the testimony case, there is this other way that the belief could fail to be safe, where the assertion alpha could easily have constituted uh, an assertion that Q, where Q is false. So an example is probably helpful here. So suppose we have a case in which there's an urn with two balls in it, one of which is red and one of which is green, which we can call R and G respectively. So we've got a speaker whose task it is to select a ball at random from the urn and then make a colour report, either by saying this is red or this is green. We can also suppose that this speaker is really appalling at telling apart red and green things. He tends to think both red things and green things are red. So what in fact happens is that the speaker selects R from the urn and says, this is red. So he says something that in fact constitutes a true assertion that R is red. But it could easily have happened that the speaker selected G from the urn. And had he selected G from the urn, he would have taken G to be green because he's so bad at telling green and red things apart. So you would have said, if he'd selected G, which he easily could have done, this is red. Thereby, like by saying this, producing a false assertion that G is red. Okay, so this is, and then the addressee's belief is going to be unsafe because they could have easily accepted a, a false assertion constituted by the words, this is red. So what's the analogue of this in the prophecy case? Um, so suppose we've got a prophetic object O, which in fact depicts some proposition P, which is true in all close possible worlds. And suppose as well that we manage to identify a feature of the, situ the feature of the situation in virtue of which the relevant depiction relations obtain, right? Uh, and we can call this feature of the situation gamma, right? So it might be the case that gamma is the sort of thing that couldn't easily have failed to be the case. So in this case, the relevant depiction relations couldn't easily have been different, in which case it's going to be the case that O couldn't easily have depicted a proposition other than P. But it might be the case that gamma is the sort of thing that could really easily have failed to obtain, in which case we might have this sort of situation. Could it easily have been the case that the relevant depiction relations for O failed to obtain, and O could have easily failed to depict proposition P? It might further be the case that beta could have easily been the case, and were it the case that beta, O would depict proposition Q rather than proposition P. Of course, this on its own isn't going to be enough to generate another source of unsafety in the output belief. For that, something additional will have to be the case. It would have to be the case that this other proposition Q that the object could easily have depicted could have been false. But of course, we learn in Danny's paper that propositions which are embedded in prophetic objects can be false. So we hear, as Maimonides describes component two of prophetic method, the prophet reasons from background beliefs and concepts towards new beliefs. It is to be expected, therefore, that during component two, one of the prophet's false background scientific beliefs may, e.g., creep into a deductive chain of reasoning where all the remaining premises are true. In this scenario, the conclusion, the embedded proposition, will be false. Um, so depending on what sort of thing it is that determines what depiction relations obtain, you may or may not get another source of lack of safety in the belief which is the output of the prophetic mechanism. Okay, so going to move on to my final remarks now. So the paper seems to assume what I'm going to call separateness of object components. So the idea here is that if we have some portion, let's call it R, of a prophetic object, which is such that it comprises or partly comprises some object component A, then R can't be a portion of any other object component. 
So the worry is like, what's motivating this assumption about the structure of object components? On the face of it, it looks a bit like a projection from the form that sentence tokens have when they're written down and the way they <coughs> express propositions. Because what is true when we have written sentences is that if some letter token comprises or partly comprises some constituent of a sentence token, then it doesn't comprise or partly comprise any other constituent of that sentence token. But the thing is, like this is just a matter of convention. The restriction isn't motivated by any kind of constraint on what sorts of arrangements can successfully express propositions. So this dot can be vivified just by thinking about other notation systems that we could have had. So we could have had a system in which, rather than writing no ocelots fly, with leaving a space between no and ocelots, we instead had something like this. Um, uh, sorry, that's bother. I know that's right. So we just have a, a special mark that we put above letters to indicate that they should be read as playing a role in two different words. Um, <coughs> So this worry about what motiv motivates separateness of object components can be thought of as motivating a much more general worry. So I've already wondered about what sort of thing it is in virtue of which depiction relations obtain, right? So this is a related but distinct worry, which is that if any anything corresponds to prophetic objects as they're described in this paper, then for any given prophetic object, there's going to be some fact of the matter about which portions of it are object components and some fact of the matter about which portions of it are not object components. And so the question is, what can play this role of determining which, why these portions and not these other portions are object components? Um, and so depending on your philosophical temperament and proclivities, you might think this is a more or less interesting question. But the thought I want to conclude on is the, like wondering about whether or not it's interesting, is it a dialectically significant question, right? Like, is it a fair thing to ask the proponent of the prophetic mechanism, this person who wants to persuade those of us who are inclined to be eliminativists about prophecy and not really take the epistemology of prophecy very seriously? Like, is it fair to demand of them that they articulate an explanation of this feature of the prophetic mechanism? Or are they allowed to just say like, okay, no, but this is obscure, but that's fine. There are, there's loads of aspects of epistemic mechanisms that are, that are obscure to us, so. Thank you. Um, I'd like to begin by thanking uh, those responsible for organizing the workshop, in particular, Charity, uh, Georgia, and Matt in particular, and thanking the Templeton Foundation. Um, thanks, Rachel, for these comments. Um, the first comment was about the individuation of, of uh, impressions constituting uh, prophetic objects, and um, you quite rightly hit on the idea of individuation of uh, uh, prophetic objects and, and in the longer piece I have um, I have some work on this and the idea is is something like this that if you if the prophetic object is made up of an image of a man on a horse um, by a lake um, the idea is that that image itself can be broken up in several ways it could be fine-grained uh, it can be broken up in a coarse-grained way, which is just the image of a man on a horse by a lake, or you could have a super-fine-grained way, which is 
a man on the horse by the lake. And the idea is that when you break it up in this way, the actual image of the man uh, can, the identity of the man can come into play. Sometimes if you do it like this, the man on a horse, um, you might start thinking of a soldier as opposed to just the, you know, um, that man on that horse, you know, and then the color of the horse might start coming in if you do it super fine-grained versus coarse-grained. So the idea is that you're quite right that the individuation of impressions in prophetic objects um, is a way that can generate a relevant lack of safety because if you individuate it in the incorrect manner, um, if, there's a, if there's a close case in which you individuate in an incorrect manner, then you're going to be, your interpretation, your, your output belief is going to be um, unsafe. And that, I think in the, in the paper itself, I, I gave the, the example of Jacob's ladder dream where you've got to individuate the, the uh, impressions quite finely because otherwise you're going to miss the point of the whole, of the whole thing. And then to address um, questions two and three together, um, so the question is in virtue of what does a certain uh, impression depict uh, the thing that it depicts, and how easily could it have been the case that um, the prophet had a method of depiction such that it depicted something that led to a false belief? And the question there, I th the answer to that question, I think, lies in you know the circularity of the safety condition uh, as a necessary condition for knowledge. Is how easily uh, the prophet could have uh, adopted a different method of depiction. Depends on how easy, on whether you think the, the prophet knows in the certain case, um, and there's no magic as to how uh, we are to in, you know to determine whether it's relevantly similar or not. Um, my thoughts, my intuitions are that if it seems that if 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 the prophet had uh, adopted a different depiction mechanism. Would be a relevant dissimilarity to count as close uh, if you adopt a, a fine-grained external individuation of methods that is Williamsonian in nature. And then for the final question, um, is there a matter of fact as to um, as to is there a matter of fact as to is it what, what objects depict in 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 uh, what individual objects, what individual impressions depict in objects, um, or is it just something obscure about the method? And here I think um, I'm going to fall back on um, some intuitions that I have. Well, I fall back in the longer piece on, on, my, on my claim of, you know, the, the meaning of, in aesthetics, the meaning of an artwork is that, is the author's intention. So... Uh, if Leonardo, if Leonardo wanted the Mona Lisa to do to depict X, then it depicts X, and if Leonardo wants it to depict Y, then it depicts Y. Right? Um, that's the meaning of the artwork. So the the brute, the fact that determines what <coughs> depicts what is is not an obscure thing. I think it's that it's the prophet's mind that determines what it is that you know what determines um, what thing. However, that might open, you know, might open the door. You might think to um, complete, you know, random depiction in, in prophecy. So, in the paper, I say a prophet can't use a frog to depict a lion. 
Um, and you might think, well, if it's the Prophet's intention to do it, then the Prophet might as well, you know, is permitted to do so. Um, but I think that um, at the end of the day, the Prophet realizes that uh, he or she is in the business of communicating truths to uh, the population. And if they're using frogs to depict lions, then a lot of people are going to start missing the point of what they're on about. So um, it's authorial intention constrained by, you know, the way things are in, in the vicinity of how things are going to be used. Like I said, um, uh, Maimonides thinks that prophets have uh, literary styles of their own. So Isaiah, when he refers to nations, he'll use stars because he was very into astronomy. So things. So that's he, his desire to depict nations with stars is his way of doing things. But the idea was he had to assume that the people would understand what he was was on about. So it's authorial intention constrained by um, you know what the the prophet thinks would you know be accessible to uh, the population. Okay, hope that. Right. Uh, we'll have questions. You can leave your hands up long enough so that I can uh, I can make a cue. Yes. So a couple just disjointed issues. One, I noticed that when you were discussing safety, uh, let me actually just quote the relevant passage here. Pull it up. Um, you're, you characterize safety in a way that made me think like the method that you come to believe a proposition by has to be infallible. Uh, so here it says, S, yeah, S falsely believes any proposition. So S safely believes proposition P via method M in a world if and only if there is no close world W or 2W in which either S blah, blah, blah. And then one of the conditions, one of the disjuncts is S falsely believes any proposition via M. Yeah. So is that, is that so yes yeah. or no, you, yeah. do you think the method has to be infallible? Well, it's not. It's not quite. It's not quite like that. It's more like the the the, the case that generates that intuition or that reading of Williamson is um, a. Williamson says that uh, cases of knowledge need to be surrounded by truths. Okay, so that's just the one half of the answer. The other half of the answer is um, suppose you uh, pulling uh, cards out of a hat on which sentences are are written and you happen to pull out the card that says uh, oranges are fruits. Um, well, there's no close world in which oranges are not fruits, right? But then you could easily have pulled out a, a card that says um, Australia is a, a state of America. So the idea is there needs to be no close world in which that method you're currently using to believe that oranges are fruits uh, yields a false proposition, uh, yields a belief in a different false proposition. So I think that was the motivating factor for that clause that I had. Okay. Yeah. So I just want to clarify. And then here's like a, a small theological okay. quibble. Yeah. So in Numbers 12.6, right? Yeah. Um, I'll just pull that up too. Uh, so Aaron and Miriam are complaining about Moses. And uh, the Lord says, and he said, Hear my words, if there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. So you want to say, look, prophecy only happens in dreams, right? And this is your dreams proof text. Right? It's not my proof text. It's Maimonides' proof text. It's, it's, it's a medieval proof. Well, it, all the medievals in one way or what most medievals in one way or another were like, well, if it says it, it says it. You know. Right. Okay. But then right, so right 
in the next verse, it says, not so with my servant Moses. Yes. Right, so sometimes prophecy happens not in dreams. Okay, so, so uh, in, my, in my cut and paste uh, uh, debacle, I forgot to mention that there's two, there's two methods for prophecy. There's going to be mosaic prophecy and there's going to be non-mosaic prophecy. Okay. And um, Maimonides recognizes the difference in a very significant way. And there's two methods. The method that I described in the papers for non-Mosaic prophecy, so that's everyone else except for Moses. Moses, on the other hand, uh, is awake, and he doesn't, his doesn't involve the imagination. So it's just straight out rational faculty, no imagination. So he's the exception, and the exception, the exception is, is used to generate a theological distinction, I think, about what can be overturned later on and what cannot be overturned. It's like his was super, super duper and yours is just super, so you can't overdo the super duper. Yeah, so you can't change it. So the, yeah, the idea is that whatever he says sticks forever and then everyone else is, is you know, super. You know, you're super, but, you know, you're not uh, Shaquille and you yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I also this word... But infallible methods, so like, um, I've had, I know lots of things by perception, but like, occasionally in my life, perception has led me astray, and I've gotten false beliefs on the basis of perception. So like, I mean, I, I think it's stated, it, it would like rule out all perceptual knowledge. I mean, it seems like there, maybe there's a fix, like maybe you could like, you know, uh, time index things or something, so it's like, it's like, it couldn't have been that you, like, there was a nearby time Sorry, yeah, it's meant to be time index, sorry. I see, okay. so I didn't copy it. So it's like, right, okay, there's yeah, not a new one where we're like, right then, or like, yeah. roughly in that time vicinity, yeah, you index. use that yeah. same method yeah. to get a false belief. Okay. Just on, I think it's also, the, the, way, the way this goes, and Williamson's thinking, or whatever, I mean, the way this goes is that, the methods have to be super fine grained. Yeah. They can't be uh -huh. perception. I mean, right. I could see that something's red, even if at, the ve at that very time perception's yeah. delivering yeah. a false belief. Yeah. So mm. you have super fine grained right. methods, right. and then we look at uh, close worlds where you use something that's a tweak on that super fine grained right. method. That's the, the feeling yeah. of it. Yeah, it's a generality problem all over. Right, but, yeah. but, but yeah. so you go super yeah. fine grained yeah. and then have. Is it, so is the, um, I mean, just to get a feel, is there like a way of expressing this stuff in like ordinary English? Like, so, yeah, so like, yeah, I see the, clearly it's a red patch right there, but then like there's some really hazy stuff in those and it gives me a false belief or something. Um, is the method then like. You might get the shape wrong, it might be good with colors and bad with shapes. No, no, I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, what is the method then other than, I mean, like, it's, it's like, vision as a means of detecting. I, I, I think you should think of, we don't hold methods fixed. You have a super fine gray method that encodes the complete data details of the process. I see, I see. And then you look at things that are similar to that, similar enough to that, where okay. that's a primitive. Okay. So you don't okay. exactly... Right. Yeah. So it's not, it's not like, uh, so basically like these methods wouldn't be like things that we would like have ordinary English like terms for, right? No. Like they're methods, almost world-bound really, methods, it's, yeah. it's just you look at... Yeah, it's, a, yeah, yeah, it's not really... Um, it's more like the causal process, path or something, yeah. not, not the method. Yeah, it's, like, it's a suitably uh, similar pathway. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, so I think that's what the What says that a, a, method a method includes details in the external world as well. Mm, right. um, so, for instance, this gives you an impression of how fine-grained it goes. It says, um, 
seeing that a person is married by looking at her wedding ring uh, is not the same method. When she wears her wedding ring reliably, it's not the same method as seeing and believing that she's married by seeing her wedding ring in a world in which she doesn't wear it reliably. Um, so it can get it can get that yeah fine grain as well. Only bit if there were I was just thinking that I mean if you think in the fine grain method way I mean I can't remember what you said but it, it seems to give profits much more of a shot at knowledge if you emphasize the you know yeah. think of safety as take the fine grain pathway and then look at just tweaks on that at close worlds and see if you know because you know you might have a profit that's terrible generally yeah but you know they're really good at seeing you know a proliferation of stars as signs of you know or they can, they, they, you know, certain things are taking the signals of danger. They're really good with that. I mean, they might be terrible. Yeah. So, but just as, you know, being terrible in all sorts of aspects of perception doesn't stop you knowing certain things by perception. It feels like if you start to play up that, it looks like, you know. No, so the, the idea is that there, there are going to be cases in which profits muck up quite a bit. So the case that I gave uh, in the paper was of the prophet Samuel. So the first couple of times that he experienced prophecy, he mucked up. He thought that Eli was calling him instead of God. Right? Totally mucked that up. And then Spinoza's got a whole bunch of cases where prophets muck up. So there's tons of, well, there's not tons. There's cases where prophets disagreed with one another, where they got dates wrong, when they got certain things wrong, they got scientific facts wrong. Spinoza even thinks they got theological facts wrong. So the idea is that there are going to be times when they do muck up. And, you know, if a false, a false belief is de facto not safe, so there's going to be times when they mess up and they're not mm -hmm. going to be safe, yeah. But did, I mean, what, what does that bear on how much knowledge well, it's just you like, get through prophecy? I mean, I mess up daily with perception probably, but I get tons of knowledge by perception. So. It all depends on the... the, the individual case, right? In some cases, the prophet will get knowledge, in some cases he won't, much like you get knowledge via perception, and in some cases you don't. It's not yeah, like, I, it's I don't not, think I'm yeah. disagreeing with that, yeah. I just think it's good to play up yeah. the fine-grainness of the method as the starting point, the super-fine-grainness, because then that, that makes it a lot more possible intuitively for the prophet to know by... Yeah, it's not, like I'm, it's not like I'm going to fine grain the, the, the method into de facto safety. No. Yeah. yeah. So one, one issue is whether prophets get to know stuff because of their prophecy. Another issue in the neighborhood is whether people like us or, or uh, any old other people who aren't prophets can get to know stuff by communication from prophets. And it seems like the kinds of things that... You know, in the cases where where the prophets get safe beliefs, um, they, they, I don't, I'm just it's a very rough thought, but it seems like it's still going to be really hard for people who who aren't prophets to acquire these things. If you know, we see that the, the prophets, you know, they've got their sayings and false stuff too, and there's uh, all of these problems of uh, interpreting interpreting their interpretation of the objects are, are particularly tricky. So the question is. In light of what I've said, you think that 
it's going to be hard for the audience to gain knowledge, testimonial knowledge via, from the prophet. Yeah, does that seem right, or maybe just um, say something about that? Well, these issues about the, the relative safety of the speaker's belief um, as a factor in the relative safety of the hearer's belief are kind of delicate matters in the epistemology of testimony. Uh, some think that in order for the hearer to know the speaker has to know. Um, some think uh, the opposite. So recently Jennifer Lackey even thinks that uh, you can know from a speaker who doesn't even believe what they say. Um, so it's all going to depend on where you stand on that issue. But my intuition is that if you, if the prophet knows, then you know, and other things, then if the if the method of transfer from prophet to uh, audience is safe, then then you know. The question then becomes interesting is when you start plugging in contextualist and um, subject sensitive and variantist. Uh, bells and whistles onto that testimonial knowledge, and then you start getting very interesting things. Uh, but I'm, I, I don't know. Yeah. But I was thinking, just looking at the way the way things are working, this kind of testimony looks like a pretty unsafe process for well, acquiring. Problems. I mean, if you think that like mathematics is very hard, and you know, a person spent a lot of time trying to work out a mathematical problem, and eventually did. Um, you know, that was a tricky kind of method. Because uh, most people can't do it, so uh, and he and she went wrong tons of times, and eventually got it. So uh, it seems as if that person tells me the answer to the mathematical question intuitively. I think I know, but again, it all depends on your uh, position on the epistemology of testimony. So I, I thought you were worried with something like even suppose we bracket the quest, like let's just assume that we've got some really great prophet, all of whose beliefs that he gets from prophecy are safe. So suppose the prophet believes that P safely, but then he doesn't explicitly assert that P to his audience. He like uses some sort of metaphor. I thought your worry was that like if this, you know, it's going to be really, you know, suppose you interpret the metaphor correctly, you probably could have easily misinterpreted the metaphor and then the belief isn't going to be safe, not because the prophet's belief isn't safe, but just because the process of interpretation of the prophet's speech act is going to be so fraught. Which is a separate word, yeah. I think. Well, which is it? The oh, first. I, I, it wasn't a very well. Okay. Point, well, the, that was part of it. The second. The second worry is 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 legit. Is that uh, one of the things prophets do is they either um, tell you straight out the embedded proposition, so they'll just tell you p. Uh, the other times, what will happen is they'll tell you the object and then tell you the embedded proposition, so they'll explain their prophecy. And other times I'll just give you the, the object, and then you've got to go out and uh, figure it out. Uh, so in the cases where they just tell you, oh, I saw a bubbling yellow pot, well then, yeah, there's going to be a lot of trouble over there. There's going to be the, the, precisely the same interpretive problems that, come for the, that arise for the, the profiting interpretation are going to arise all the more so for the uneducated masses that Maimonides speaks of. So this is a very interesting thing, is that many of the stories that we're told in the Bible, according to Maimonides, are just that. They're prophetic objects. Um, and people have radically misunderstood them all along. Yeah. Other questions? 
tricky because that depends on what your view on the meanings of metaphors are. And at least one popular view is that they don't really have any conventional meaning. So you can't really misinterpret them because everything that they, all, all the content that you get are sort of in the, on the audience's side, not on the side of the uh, intention of the speaker, mm -hmm. right? So it, it yeah. is. I, I'm not, I, it would seem really bizarre if uh, uh, the whole way of communicating truth was, hey, I've got something to communicate to you. Uh, here's something, you just do whatever you want with it. Uh, yeah, no, that, that's, I mean, that would be that, really that's, crazy. That's true, but that's true of our normal ordinary speech, right? Now, if I say, you know, that's green, I can't mean that's blue by that, right? Yeah. Uh, just by, you know, the conventional meaning of our words. But the thing is that metaphor is a special sub kind of speech where, um, you know, where you have less of the guidedness by conventional rules. I don't know if the uh, prophetic object neatly can be classified can be classified neatly as a metaphor. Right, so I'm not sure about that. I mean, I just you know, it depends on one's right, theory so of I mean, metaphor. I mean, yeah. I'm just saying to the extent yeah. that yeah. it, which it is like a metaphor or an allegory or yeah. poetic speech or something. Yeah. Uh, it's tricky depending on how, what, what yeah. your views and. Uh, my my. It, you know, my de facto position is in authorial intention on those things. The meaning is just is what the author intended. But that's an old, ingrained intuition. I don't know if I'll ever get rid of that, but yeah. There's a really just a, a follow-up on one aspect of um, Jeff's question. I was trying to get your frame of mind, but it, it's, not, it's, it's, it's the ones where you're just directly telling the proposition rather than going by, by or not. Yeah. It's good to start with sim simple cat. I mean, suppose I see that something's red, but misperceive its shape, and I misperceive it as circular, and then I tell you it's rare, it's red and circular. Is your picture of things that you come to know it's red? Sorry, you see? I mean, obviously, my misperception of the shape doesn't stop me knowing it's red. But I think what's partially behind Jeff's question is, if they then just say it again. You what do you? Say? I get the. I, I come to know the. I here's what I do. I'm I misperceive the shape. I correctly perceive the color. I yeah. come to know it's red. Yeah. I come to falsely believe it's circular. Yeah. And then I tell you, oh, it's red. It's red and no. I tell you it's red and circular. Okay. Yeah. And then the question is, do I know it's red? Yeah. Yeah. Um, because that, okay. that, that structure is going to come up a lot and yeah. then that, that's yeah. going to be a transmission problem. If you thought that in that situation the false belief doesn't stop me knowing it's red but that it's packaged but the package does stop you knowing it's red yeah. and I think that's a decision point that's, part, that's partly what's going on with your question isn't it? Um, I think you know uh, working with John on this a little bit recently is that maybe there's times where uh, I wouldn't have believed you about uh, I wouldn't have believed a conjunction each I wouldn't have believed each conjunct without believing the conjunction from you or something like that and the, you know it's, it's going to be a delicate thing about you know knowledge from false belief again perhaps and testimony yeah 
But it is quite obscure, the judgment yeah. call in those cases. Yeah. It's, I don't think people, I don't think there's much, yeah. Well, the, I think uh, that, that it's good you, to look at that simple case before we go there. If you, you know, Williamson says, um, he thinks of testimony as a cumulative conception of bases such that my basis of belief from you includes the basis of your belief. So if your belief is unsafe, then it's this, this one between us is going to be unsafe. <coughs> Yeah, good point. So this is just to follow up on the earlier discussion about fine-grained methods. Yeah. Um, just to worry about whether fine-graining the method makes it harder for you to respond to the Kripke, Redbarn, Greenbarn problem. So the, I mean, the, the sort of worry is, um, if I'm looking at this uh, Redbarn and um, uh, there are no uh, red fakes in the vicinity, but there are plenty of fake barns in the vicinity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we find way in the method, so it's something like believing on the basis of it's looking like a, right. uh, a red barn, then yeah. it looks like yeah. I'm safe, but so I know that it's a red barn, but I don't know it's a barn. Um, one, one way out is to say, well, we should coarse-grain the method, or perhaps say you're using multiple methods. You're using the method of, um, if it looks like a red barn, believe it's a red barn. If it looks like a barn, believe it's a barn. And all of these methods, both the more coarse-grained mm -hmm. and the more fine-grained, have to be safe. Yeah. Um, but if you go ultra fine grain, do you have? An, is there another way of solving the problem? It, so if you read John's and Tamara's paper on uh, fake bonds, you know you realise it gets all very hairy on on issues of fake bonds. And um, I think it just on issues like this, you just got to you know realise that um, as Williamson's conceiving the idea of methods is, you're not going to. Uh, pick on uh, your judgment calls on on picking on methods is going to be influenced by your judgment calls on knowledge. Yeah, that yeah, the circularity of it. There is a basic structural thing to say connecting to the accumulation of bases. I mean, if I think it's a red barn and I deduce that it's a barn. You're not going to get closure failure because the method for, form, for the formation of that belief involves going via it's a red barn and there's no close case where you form the belief that it's a barn by that method. See, the fine grain method saves, saves closure. Yeah. You might think there's a... There are, other, there are other worries you might, but it's not, there's no closure problem here. I get the point. The, the worry, if it's yeah. anything, is that, hey, if you just straight out believed it's a barn, that, that wouldn't be knowledge, but if you went via the red barn, it would be. I mean, there, so there are things you might press on, but there's not the same risk of closure failure. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, a little follow up on the testimony. There has to be cases where. Uh, despite the testifier being safe or knowing, you don't get to know. So, for instance, if you have like, you know, fifteen prof, like fifteen alleged prophets in front of you, and only one of them is a true prophet, and you, you get like fifteen messages. And even if the one prophet has safe belief, presumably you don't get to know. You know, if they are just making very similar judgments. So, the first one is saying. Like you will have uh, bread on Monday, the second one saying you will have bread on Tuesday, the third one saying you will have bread on 
Wednesday and so on. There's only one of them who has a knowledgeable, uh, who's making a knowledgeable prophecy. So I guess here for sort of fake bond consideration, you say, well, even though the prophet knows uh, the claim, you don't get to know by listening to them. I mean, that's an obvious, you know, an obvious observation is that, you know, depending on the, the, the details of the case and of the method and what's going on in the, in, in the in, you know, in, in the background, you know, there's going to be cases where you get a belief from a prophet who safely believed that, but you don't get knowledge from it. Yeah. But this I seems to be a counterexample to this, to at least one version of understanding the claim. The basis, the, the basis of the testifier claim becomes part of the basis for your belief. I mean, I have one way of understanding that where uh, if the basis of the testifier is safe, then the basis of the uh, audience is thereby safe by accumulation. And uh, so either you read accumulation in a way that doesn't entail, doesn't have this consequence, or there is no accumulation. It's this the first is the prophet's uh, method for acquiring that belief. The second is uh, you and the prophet, you acquiring the belief from the prophet, and then, the then you just put the two together and then you... So it's accumulation of risk rather than yeah. accumulation but of safety, right? Oh, okay. So like in the case where you've got 15 prophets lined up, you know, the second part of it is going to mess it up for the entire part. This is maybe more a theological kind of angle on it, but I'm wondering about, uh, so like some prophecies don't seem to be particularly concerned with like outputting a kind of predictive statement or a single, or a single output. So I mean, uh, for some or even seem, uh, the intended output seems to be that it will be false. So I mean, you look at like the Jonah case, right? 40 days in the city will be overturned, that's the prophecy. It seems like the intent of this prophecy is to make it so that Nineveh repents and then they don't get overturned. You know, the prophecy just, uh, Kind of isn't fulfilled in that way. Um, but like, at least among some theologians, uh, like they'll want to talk about prophecies as being ambiguous, and like that this is a really positive thing. Um, like that prophecies are interpreted in one way, and then you know a couple hundred years later, that same prophecy is fulfilled again, um, but kind of under a different guise. Um, so maybe kind of in terms of the man on a horse by a lake. You know, there's a there's a sense early on in which it's it's fulfilled, and the man horse lake all taken separately, and then. Later, there's a way in which the man on a horse by a lake is fulfilled. And this seems, to some theologians anyway, this seems like a really awesome thing. Like, this is a really cool thing about prophecy that has cool theological implications or something. Um, but I'm wondering how that interacts with uh, just my minorities picture or kind of your project. So the second point was a prophecy can be fulfilled many times, is that? At least some theologians want to say that. I don't know if that's minorities line, I know. And then the first point was some prophecies are not meant to be true or false. It doesn't matter whether they're true or false. They're, they're, they're meant to function as something else, such as a warning or a... Right. Yeah. Okay, so the first point is a point that Maimonides and many others pick up on, which is um, if, if Jonah believed that the, the city would be overturned in, in 40 days, um, you know, then he had a false belief because it didn't, right? Um, some, some prophets, I mean, 
some, some theolo medieval theologians think that those are just warnings, conditional warnings, right? Um, so it doesn't matter if it comes out false, right? Um, and Maimonides doesn't take a view on that in The Guide of the Perplexed, though it does take a view on it earlier. I don't think the two views are consistent, but the idea was that there was floating around in the medieval period this idea that uh, some prophecies are warnings. So if you don't like buckle up, it's gonna, uh, it's gonna get bad, right? Um, uh, the second thing is he doesn't say anything about things being fulfilled multiple times. Yeah. So I, I don't know, I, I don't know what he would say about that. It's a good point, but I don't know. And I don't know if this changes the question, but I think part of the point too was that there could be, there could be different things that were prophesied by the same prophecy token. I was thinking, right, right, exactly. so that it's not just that the same thing happens more than once. It's not just saying there will be a man on a horse by the lake, and there's a guy on the horse like in an hour, and then there's a different guy in two hours. It's that it could be that the ambiguity led to a single token. Yeah, yeah, and I, I got that. I just, yeah. I, I don't know what he would, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The idea, well, it could, it could naturally accommodate that, that it could be that um, the prophet reasons towards the to three different conclusions and figures out that, I mean, the imagination figures out that it could depict that same, those three events with the same object, and then boom, puts those out, and then, you know, you got what you wanted. Oh, unless there are other questions, let's go ahead and uh, thank our speaker.